Reverend Jack Alvey with the Reverend Josiah Ringers with This Anglican Life, a moderate voice for contentious times. We're on to episode six, separation of church and state, question mark. Jack, what's up? It's good to be back. Um, We've taken a break. 18 months. 18 months. Just long enough for you to have a child, and that child's now 18 months old. No, the child's actually two and a half, but you know. Yeah, well, we started when he was one. We took a break uh, because I think we were both busy, and um, we had a lot going on in our ministries. We've circled back to this initial concept of of why I have a podcast at all. We have a podcast, I think, as a way for us to connect to our parishioners at Ascension Episcopal Church, at St. Thomas Episcopal Church, to connect with folks during the week, to connect with people who are around Birmingham who... um, go to different churches, and to connect to all of our friends and family and Christians globally who aren't able to be with us in community. You, you made a big jump there. You went from Birmingham to globally, but also in the Diocese of Alabama. And, um, you know, one of the one of the big things um, about my ministry, or I see as a part of my ministry, is to make space for people to grow in the knowledge and love of God. And a podcast seems to be a great way to make space in our lives to grow in, in God's love. Yeah, and Jack and I spend a lot of time together, and um, and we say such amazing and insightful and genius things mm-hmm. just in passing every day that we really feel like this should be recorded for posterity. And, and <laughs> probably if we ever do send any man or women to the moon or to, to Mars, we should probably send these recordings with them into outer space. So that not just those living on planet Earth. So not only globally, but um, interstellarly. Intergalactically. Intergalactically. Yeah, so we're glad for our friends joining us again on This Anglican Life. We have a lot to talk about today, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, our conversation topic, really, about the separation of church and state, if there should be a separation or not. We're going to phone a friend, Cameron Nations, over at St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Mountain Brook, we want to interview Cameron about his thoughts and views on all of this. But first, we're going to check in for the week on our scripture. You know, in the Episcopal Church, we, we follow a, a lectionary that if you go to church every single Sunday for three years, you will have heard the entire Bible proclaimed. And we will do our best to reimagine that scripture through a creative, insightful, or in Jack's case, incredibly boring sermon Every week. <laughs> you know, this is a really, you know, we often talk about how Advent is the the first day of the church year. And really, in a lot of ways, Pentecost could be argued as the first day of the church year because it's the birthday of the church. It's when, when, when as a, a, a three-year-old, five-year-old said, it's when God lit the disciples on fire for Jesus. It's when the church was born. It was when it went from a group of disciples to turning those disciples outwards into apostles, from people becoming students to going out and becoming teachers and evangelists and entrepreneurs and marketers and people going out and spreading this new message. We're already getting phone calls. We're, listen, uh, the lines are The hot. lines are closed right now, but thank you for thinking of us. So, Jack, do you have any deep insight for the scripture this week? This is how Jack and I normally talk. When I'm, you know, Saturday afternoon struggling to put together a sermon idea, I call Jack and say, Jack, what genius ideas do you have on Scripture this week? And the Scripture this week is from the, from the book of Acts, which is the second chapter of Luke. It's Luke and Acts. 
and it's the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes down like flames and tongues of fire and like ignites the A rush the of a violent wind as well. And this year we also get, um, we also get the Genesis reading uh, for Babel when everyone uh, wanted to look alike and be alike and build their own city to heaven. And what did God do? He dispersed them across the earth. He confused their language. Uh, it's sort of like going to, um, to like a camp or uh, you know some kind of retreat where you get there and you want to hang out with your best buddies. But then the retreat leader says, all right, go talk to someone you don't know. Right? Oh, I know. That's so uncomfortable. It's even worse in the Episcopal Church when we say, okay, everybody, get up from your normal pew and go sit in a pew you haven't sat in before. And everyone looks horrified and terrified. Have you done that before? <clears throat> this week, no, no, because I think they had chased me out of the church. Yeah. Well, at, um, this, in, this word is interesting, disperse. We think of the Tower of Babel, this Genesis chapter 10 and 11, we think of it as a punishment when God sends everyone out to diversify the world, speaking new languages, populating new nations. But how do we experience the Holy Spirit? How do we experience kind of the living being of God, which is spirit, is through dispersal. And that happens at the Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes and goes out to all people. So where in Genesis it seems like a punishment, in Acts we see this as the great gift of salvation, the great gift of God, that this is the most blessed thing, that you don't have to be a Jew, a Jewish person in Jerusalem to experience God any longer. You don't have to be a Christian to experience God. You don't have to be anything. You just have to be. And in that we say that God has created you in His image and that God loves you and that God is pouring Himself into the world to make Himself known to you. So Jack, let me ask you this. I'm going to say something and then I'd love for you to react. Because the Spirit of God goes out for all people, right? And later on Paul's going to tell us that look, nothing nothing, not even life, not even death, neither our gender, nor our sexuality, nor our station in life, nor our, the color of our skin can separate us from the love of God. And Pentecost shows us that the Spirit of God is here now for everybody, all people, all languages, all, all creeds, all nationalities. And we seem to have had this history of the last 2,000 years of Christendom where we say, yes, God loves all people, but then we kind of narrow that down a little bit. And God kind of has to hit us over the head and say, no, all means all. You know, I think of, like, at the day of Pentecost, there's all these different languages, all these different nations. But then the first thing that Peter does is he says, yeah, yeah, God is here for all people, but you have to become Jewish first to really experience God. You have to be circumcised. You have to worship the way we worship and do our traditions, observe our traditions and then you can be part of God's all-encompassing love. And then Paul reacts to that really strongly, saying, no, all is all. But can you think of any other times as Christians that we've done that, where we've put a box around people and said, well, God loves all of us, but more significantly, these people? <laughs> that is a, a great question, loaded question. Um, there are plenty of times we do that. I mean, you know, I think we sometimes do that as Episcopalians, right? I mean, you know, whatever your own denominational loyalty is, we, we tend to think is best because for whatever reason, we found a place in the Episcopal Church or the Methodist Church or the Catholic Church. And it's, I think it's human nature um, to think whatever team you are on is best. And, um, you know, I often have to remember that for whatever reason, 
God thinks the Pentecostal church needs to exist. God thinks the Baptist church needs to exist. And, and I have to be humbled a lot to remember that there are truths that that particular church are proclaiming um, that we need to pay attention to. So often we, we try to pay attention to our differences and how, how we're different. And uh, the Episcopal church is better because we do X, Y, and Z. But how is the Baptist church, how is the fundamental church um, uh, also proclaiming a truth that we need to pay attention okay. to? Okay. Well, this is the topic of what we want to talk about today. How do we know which Christian group is right when we engage in high-profile, kind of high-stakes political conversations that are infused by our Christian faith? For example, um, right now Alabama just passed um, the most restrictive abortion law in the nation. It's, again, all over, news all over the country. It's making, you know, um, the conversation and topic of a lot of households. And Christian groups are very divided on this conversation. Like I saw an AL.com conversation between the, uh, the Catholic Diocese and the Baptist, a Baptist church, where they were celebrating this new law because it really uh, is the fruit of decades and decades of their work and prayers. And yet there are other Christian denominations. They're really offended and hurt by this decision. And they're really upset. And they're now beginning protests and, and actions as a response. And so here you have different Christian groups, different Christian denominations, who may all have uh, truth to proclaim, and yet very, very divided on a social issue that does impact people's lives. So when two Christian groups are in disagreement, which one is right? How do we know which one is speaking the truth to power when they're opposing each other and they're both proclaiming the truth? You know, there are a lot of ways to answer that question. Uh, one way is to go to, to Scripture, and you, you just brought up Peter's sort of idea that everyone has to become Jewish before they can really experience the Spirit of God, and Paul rebukes him, and they have this, this great conversation, and uh, they call on the Holy Spirit to, to be a part of that conversation, and then and finally, uh, you know, uh, through, through dialogue and through prayer, um, they come to the conclusion they said it seems good to us and to the spirit that we should no longer apply these restrictions to the Gentiles, to to the people who aren't a part of the Jewish tradition or the Jewish Jewish nation. And and so um, Scripture tells us it has something to do with prayer, it has something to do with dialogue, and it has something to do with the the Holy Holy Spirit. Uh, again, uh, returning to Scripture, when when Jesus again uh, when he is preparing to leave this world. Uh, what does he say to his disciples? How will they know that you are my followers? By your love for each other. Not by what you believe, not by what rules you follow, not by what political agenda you are, um, you are uh, a part of, but by your love for one another. And you don't, you don't have to, um, I, I'm sure the case is true in your own family, when you go home for a family reunion, there are Democrats and Republicans and everyone in between, and you know, we, we love each other, but we don't agree on everything. But what do we do? No, as a matter of fact, I'm from a big Italian family where even if you do agree with each other, you still uh, pretend like you don't so that we can have good epic fights over the, over the supper table. There's value in that disagreement. There's value in being able to disagree in a kind and loving and gentle way to help us refine the best truth. Mm -hmm. But what happens... But what happens when... We're disagreeing politically, and it has a significant impact on someone's life. So how do we, so should we be separating 
the church and the state? Should we be separating our faith from our politics? Absolutely not. I mean, you can't. You read the Gospels and you read the entire uh, scriptures. I mean, you know, there's the kingdom of God and then there are the kingdoms of this world. And the bringing of the good news of Jesus and his kingdom is all about transforming the kingdoms of this world. It's not, it's not a, a religion uh, formed so we can go and hide away from the world. It's a religion, um, or, or Jesus is breathing this new way of being where um, we transform society. And so, yeah. We, so do you preach about like current events and politics? I, I do sometimes. Um, I, I, I rarely, um, rarely, I, I might have on one or two occasions, like speak out in support of a particular agenda or policy. Um, but more often I feel that my place as a pastor to the people of this congregation is how can we have these important conversations in a way that produces, um, uh, uh, how can we have these conversations in a way uh, not only, not simply that we stay together as a family, but in a way that speaks to justice and truth and mercy for the least, the last, and the lost. And those are hard conversations to have. So do you think, you don't tell me all the specific examples, but has anybody ever gotten mad at you for preaching about politics? Uh, no one has ever said it to my face. Um, they just go around behind your back and send. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, that, that sermon was a little too political. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure people have been upset before I like to engage with politics and with current events, especially in sermons, because it's like the world we live in. You know, if I'm ignoring what's happening in the newspaper, yeah. then I'm ignoring the life that we're all living what six is, days in the of the week outside outside the doors of the church. Was it was it Carl Bart who said preach with a Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so um, I engage it a lot because I think it's relevant to us and where we're at, and it shapes our worldview. I've never had anybody mad at me for preaching about a politic that they hold to be true. I've only ever had people mad at me for preaching about politics when they disagree with my politics. Sure, sure. I would also, I would never shy away from preaching something just because I felt like it was uh, divisive if I felt like it was the truth, the gospel truth, yeah. like centered in the gospel. But there are times where I'll definitely talk about politics, definitely talk about current events, rounding out the edges to create space for people with different political views. But I'm always going to preach about it from the perspective of the kingdom of God and, and where is God in this situation. Yeah, and there's, there's always a tension or a line to be held because, you know, as a rector, you know, we are called to be the pastor for all people. So on some level, we are called to make sure that this group of Christians, this group of believers, um, this group of you know, whatever you want to call us, uh, disciples, uh, stays together. But at some point, the middle ground erodes away. At some point, there you can't take a middle ground. Uh, you think about the, um, you know, you think about the, the Israelites wandering in the desert for 40 years. At some point, someone's going to have to be left behind. And that's that's a hard truth. But you do it for the sake of the truth of the gospel. So, so, so placate or making everyone feel happy it, it, it can't work forever. So to the literal dozens of people listening to this podcast right now live as we, as we stream it, they can't see us, Jack, but um, if you were here with us in the studio, you'd see that Jack is significantly older than I am. An old man, elderly, some say almost decrepit. Jack has been a priest for almost 10 years. 
Whereas I've only been a priest for, for just about nine years. So, <laughs> so Jack has a lot more experience, obviously, than I do in this. But I'd say in the last, in the last nine years, since I began preaching regularly, uh, every year I want to say, well, this is the most divided time in our nation's history. Oh, yeah. And, you know, every year it's been true. And even especially this year, it feels maybe more true than the last Absolutely. decade, where it feels like we're losing a sense of middle ground. Mm-hmm. It feels like we're losing a sense of what does it mean to be centrist? You know, we're moving more towards the left and more towards the right, more towards hardline parties. And in some ways, we have these echo chambers where we, where we listen to the news and the media and the social media that reflects back to us our our thoughts and our what we want to be true our biases so we're listening to people just reaffirming what we already believe yeah and that creates a more divided nation or divided perspective and often you know when someone posts something on social media that really gets my blood boiling my my first instinct is to like defriend them but i know that a part of my call is to listen to their voice because there's something there's something there that i need to pay attention to um you know, one of the one of the images that comes to mind right now is it's like we're playing tug of war without a rope. That's interesting. So, like, there, you know, I, I've always said that the truth is found in the tension, um, that you have to have that that tension in order to sort out truth. Um, I, that I, that's what the Anglican sort of communion is all about. You know, back in the day when. Uh, in the 1500s, when the Anglicans were trying to figure out, they weren't even called Anglicans. It was just the Church of England. Um, and after the Catholics stopped killing the Protestants, and the Protestants stopped killing the Catholics, Queen Elizabeth said, "Okay, how can we have a united church?" Yeah, and it's really famous because they called it the Elizabethan, the Elizabethan compromise. And their compromise was like, "Can we just agree to stop killing one another?" <laughs> and they were killing each other in these horrible, violent ways in public, mm-hmm. and. Um, for decades, and the compromise was, let's just stop murdering one another because of our theological differences. And, and one of the things, you know, we're going back to theology, and I, I've read somewhere in various different places, and I think it's true, is that theology by its very nature divides. Theology by its very nature divides, but prayer by its very nature unites. And that is what the whole Anglican settlement, the Elizabethan settlement was about. It's like, we're going to have a prayer book. We're not going to have a theological statement. We're not going to have a dogma. We're not going to have a particular doctrine. Those exist, but they all come secondary to the prayer book. We're going to be united. And in this, we called it, you know, the great Anglican third way, where there's not the left and there's not the right. There's not uh, different denominations. There's a middle way where we can sit in the middle and still speak truth. Um, And it seems to me that there's a space for us to do that, especially in times that are divided, where people retreat to their own corners, where people want to be told they're right and made to feel they're right. And there are times maybe when both sides are wrong, (laughs) or maybe both sides are a little bit wrong and both sides are a little bit right, and we're still trying to pursue how God fits neatly into that. And there's always, you know, usually in these conversations, uh, you know, these contentious conversations, there's usually a cross moment. And when I say cross moment, there's a moment where we realize we have destroyed the image of God in each other because of these fights. There's a moment when we look at the cross and we see our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, dying and suffering for the sins of the world because we are because of our insatiable need to be right. We have killed the image of God yeah, and that's important. in each other. And you know, that's important to, to point out because 
it's not as though we don't have opinions. And it's not as though we're trying to take a middle road stance because we want to make everybody happy and we don't want to step on anyone's toes or not offend somebody. I think, no, as a matter of fact, this is maybe more offensive to everybody where I think part of our value system as Episcopal clergy, Jack and I, where where we worship and work, part of our work is pointing out to everybody, you know, when we have... Uh, great big logs in our own eyes and say maybe maybe we're shouting so much that we're right that we become self-righteous and blinded by that self-righteousness so how do we begin to see each other again with empathy how do we begin to stop demonizing each other and start seeing each other so we can have more constructive conversations yeah i mean and i and i sound like a broken record when i say that again going back to the cross and seeing how um you know there are plenty of cross moments in in history um, but just when you are stopped to the point where you're like, oh my gosh, look what we've done to each other. Like war is a great That's example. We'll sure go back to that in another episode. <laughs> but even then there, even then it was, it, even then war is by its very nature, tragic and sinful and all that kind of stuff. Um, no matter how good the cause or, or, or whatever, uh, that's, but that's sort of a, a cross moment. And where we get to the point where there is no other response than to fall to our knees and beg for mercy. So I hear you saying, Jack, that from your perspective, that maybe there shouldn't be a separation of church from state, where the state is very much part of your church experience, mm-hmm. your preaching experience at least, the dialogue you're having with your parishioners, the way you're interacting as community, is not pushing the state outside of the church. No, and, I, and and for me, you know, I I value relationships over ideas, um, you know, and I think when we marry uh, our ideas to our identity, then we get in a lot of trouble. And everything should start, as Jesus said, by your love for one another. So, so you have that common ground. So even when you disagree with each other, you can still love one another. You can still be in community with one another. You can still have these difficult conversations. But as you said right now, we're just in silos. We're not accomplishing anything um, by you know yelling from our different sides of the tug of war when there's not even a rope. Well, we agree on this, but I'll push against Jack because I'm going to say something that I know just inflames him and makes him so angry. He's going to jump up and down. And, and storm around the, the studio right now. Well, I definitely th- totally believe we should not separate the state from our church, that our conversation as Christians has to be infused within the world we live in. Like, I have to read the newspaper every day. I have to see what's happening on the news. I have to know when we're passing new laws. I have to know when when um, things are happening nationally, you know, that are going to affect me and my family and my people and my friends and my neighbors. However... And Jack can argue with me about this. However, I think there should be a separation in the state from the church. Where I think the state has a larger responsibility to people who are non-Christians, to people who are of different religions, people who observe different expressions of Christianity. And I think the real damage can happen when we have politicians go in and say, well, I am this kind of Christian... And that informs my policy. So now I'm going to enforce that policy on everyone else. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't disagree with that. I think that's that's a very, that can be a very destructive thing. But at some point, you have to be informed by some kind of truth, right? You have to be informed by some kind of truth. But for instance, you know, I hear people say a lot, "Oh, 
part of the decline of Christianity is when we took prayer out of schools. Well, I'm a big supporter of not having prayer in schools because I want to raise my children to be Christian. I want them to be raised thoughtful, prayerful, to really know and love uh, God and have an experience of God. And I don't send them to the elementary school to be informed by of their Christian faith by someone else because that can look like a lot of different people or it can look like a lot of different things, right? I think people would be very upset, you know, at least here in the in the South, in the American South, in the Bible Belt, you know, if we were saying different kinds of prayers, if we're saying Jewish prayers or Muslim prayers or, or prayers of different Christian denominations with which we disagreed on certain big ticket items, people I think would be really offended. So then why should we impose our Christian perspective on people who might not share that perspective. Yeah. So you're talking about imposing a state religion. Basically. Yeah, I think there should not be a state religion. Yeah, and, you know, if you think about, you know, most of the context of Scripture, with a few exceptions, is said um, assuming that God's people are a minority. They are not in positions of power. This is a, this is a marginalized group of people um, that God comes to bring about transformation, transformation to the kings of this world. So, it's hard for us to people who hold power, you know, by and large Christians hold power in this country and in our state. Right. And those are the people that are influencing how we are governed. But the context we have for that is not found in scripture. And so ever since Constantine and uh, Christianity became a part of the mainstream of culture, that has fundamentally changed how our, our witness, how we proclaim the good news of the kingdom um, and so no, it's no longer a, a revolutionary group, you know, st- standing up to the man. Now it's embedded within in culture, which is changing. And we can talk it about is changing. Another... It's, it, you know, I would, I would say today, people say it's a Christian nation, which I would deep fruit of our work. And you can say, you know, we can look at the fruit of our laws and the fruit of our senators and representatives yep. and say, does that reflect the no. gospel, does that reflect being a disciple of Jesus Christ? You know what? We're going to bring in an expert on this, someone who knows far more than either Jack or I. It's our friend Cameron Nations. We've had him on ice, put him on hold because we had so many wonderful and interesting things to say. He's been waiting patiently for us, and he's just jumping out of his skin to join the conversation. Cameron Nations is associate priest at St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Mountain Brook. Uh, so, Cameron, uh, one of the things we're interested to, to hear from you is... Uh, what in particular is a priest, as we know to be true in the Episcopal Church, uh, as a pastor for all people, what is our role in engaging people with politics and policies um, that are issued in our state and in our country and around the world? Um, how, how are we supposed to engage that conversation? Uh, how does, what does that look like in the pulpit? What does that look like in our daily lives? Sure. So I think so. I think about this a lot because I think overall these questions require like constant discernment and continual discernment. Um, to I, well, I almost hesitate to say get right, um, but they just require continual discernment. So I think about these things a lot, in particular about my preaching, um, because I think the role of a of a priest in the pulpit on some of these issues is maybe a little bit different than the role of a priest in, in daily life or in other, you know, formats and, and forms. So um, what I mean by that is, like, 
to me, a sermon is a very particular kind of proclamation. It's liturgically situated, for one. You know what I mean? You're, it's also not a discussion um, either, right? It's a one-way kind of thing. Your congregation, unless you do something kind of weird where you like want to do, I don't know, let's have a holy time of discussion or something. I don't know. Um, it's The congregation doesn't talk back, right? You're, you are in the pulpit, oftentimes, especially like at St. Luke's, the pulpit is raised up, you're looking down on everybody and speaking at them, right? Yeah. And, um, and so I think, like, that requires maybe some extra care because I feel like I have to carry that with some degree of humility, you know, and understanding that they can't talk back, they can't yeah. share, the congregation can't share what's on their minds and hearts about whatever I'm preaching about. And so... While I want to um, and feel that at times it's necessary to challenge folks um, in a sermon, because I think that's part of what that whole role is about, um, I also try to be very careful that um, that I'm just mindful of the fact that they can't talk back to me, you know, and um, and so I might say something in a conversation with the parishioner, um, or maybe even I might write something that I would make accessible to parishioners to read that would be maybe a little more direct or forceful than something I would say from the pulpit. Not to say that I wouldn't challenge people from the pulpit on something, but I, I tend to just think that a sermon might not always be the best form for, um, for certain proclamations. And, and determining that really depends pretty heavily on, on discernment, right? And so I'm not sure that there's just like a general rule that can apply to everybody in every church and every pulpit. But, um, you know, like at St. Luke's, we have some folks who are, and I would imagine it's the same um, in y'all's churches too, right? That there are some people who are going to lean much more to the right of me politically. There are going to be some people who are going to lean to the left um, as well. And so... And I may even identify more with the left-leaning members of my congregation, but I still have to be a pastor to the more conservative members of my congregation or those who may disagree with me politically. So how do you uh, pastor to people as they uh, that, that vehemently disagree with you? Uh, what, sorry, what was that? So how do you pastor to people who vehemently disagree with you? You know, when, so, when you preach something or you say something and, and people are really upset by it, how do you then re-engage those folks? Um, well, I mean, I think that's, that's a perfect opportunity to have an actual conversation with them, um, and, uh, and, and to address that, and to try to figure out, you know, what is it, what is it about what I said that set that person off so badly, um, and to help them kind of understand, like, where I'm coming from in, in that as well, and quite frankly, I don't think that all of those result in a changed mind or a changed heart, um, or some sort of agreement, and we both walk away, you know, I don't know, like that person walks away agreeing with me finally. Um, but I would hope that, I would hope that there could be some sort of mutual understanding, and I don't know, some something exchanged that way that, um, that showed a little bit uh, of the um, diversity in the body of Christ. Although I will say, like, uh, you know, I'm saying all these things as if certain things are, like, everything is kind of negotiable enough for debate. I do think that there are certain things that really are just fundamental Christian principles that that get at the very heart and identity of, of the faith. And you can't, you know, you can't, like, agree to disagree on some of those things. Sure. Um, 
are there are there any topics that would cause you as a priest not just as a private citizen but are there any things that would cause you to go out in the streets and protest or march or you know rally yeah certainly i mean there there are definitely things that i've you know have very strong convictions about um but again i always kind of read or think through those things in light of a pastoral relationship to somebody and i say you know, always when I'm thinking about those things, I say, could this compromise a pastoral relationship that I have with somebody that I need to maintain? And is there a way for me to assert this conviction that I, that I have that can help maintain and keep open that pastoral relationship I have with that person? But then there are things, like I said, that I, I just sort of throw that to the wind totally. So by way of example, because um, I feel like I'm just speaking in generalities, um, you know, I feel like if you wanted to preach on a an atrocity, there is literally one every single week, right? Like there is a headline that you could you could include and incorporate in a sermon that would touch on some aspect of the Christian life. And so I think as preachers, we have to think about all the time of like what do we what current event do we speak out about or something like that, or how do we incorporate what's happening in the world into our preaching? Um, and most recently, when I kind of had one of those moments where I scrapped the sermon that I had prepared and just decided to speak on something that was really weighing heavily on my heart, was after the uh, mosque shooting in New Zealand, um, and the details had come out that the shooter had been radicalized um, by white supremacist groups who had ties to white supremacist groups in the United States. And so I was set to preach... Um, one of our services that day, and um, I just really felt that I really needed to talk about that in particular, because even though this was an event that happened thousands of miles away on the other side of the world, white supremacy is not something that happens thousands of miles away on the other side of the world, but it's something that we still contend with very in very profound ways in our state, um, and I talked about the fact that our very state constitution that we still have was literally devised in order to enshrine, insofar as was legally possible, white supremacy into the very fabric of our state. And so whether or not people in the congregation that day find themselves to harbor these kind of overt racist or racial animus towards somebody else, we still live right in the midst of that system and in the midst uh, of white supremacy, whether we feel we're white supremacist or not. And that even though that happened on the other side of the world, as a faith community here in Alabama, and specifically in a faith community that happens to be a, quote, over-the-mountain community, which I know y'all serve as well, the very idea of an over-the-mountain community has a racial component to it. You know what I mean? It, it signifies someone who's not of color in the city, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so I kind of, I felt very convicted that I needed to talk about that. And, um to make people a little bit uncomfortable, hopefully, uh, and to challenge them to see their life of discipleship as a Christian here in Alabama in that particular way um, as something that they could do uh, to help heal, bring reconciliation and heal the world in the ways that I think we're called to do as Christians. So, I don't know, does that kind of yeah, uh, maybe help a little bit more? I love what you're saying, Cameron. Thank you for being um, available and um, open about your thoughts. Uh, lots of things came up in my mind. Uh, I, I talked to a friend who who uh, pastors a, a pretty liberal church 
and uh, one of their parishioners went to visit uh, another church uh, that was also very liberal and it kind of you know as this person was listening to the sermon they walked away from it saying the only thing that happened was that the preacher confirmed my worldview I wanted, yes. I wanted the preacher to challenge my worldview because I know that a life of discipleship, uh, Jesus is always challenging how we see and interact in the world. So sermons by its very definition should in some way or another um, challenge us. Obviously, there are words of comfort and encouragement. Um, the, the, the word of God's um, uh, enduring love for, for all of us is always included. Um, but at the same time, a life of discipleship by its very nature challenges us because um, essentially Jesus is calling us into a kingdom that looks nothing, or not, not, I shouldn't say nothing, uh, calling us into a kingdom that does not mirror the kingdoms of this world, even, even these great United States. Uh, another thing that occurs to me, you're talking about you know, walking away, not changing anyone's mind. Yeah, most of the time we're not. But I love that image uh, of Nathan and David. Nathan tells that parable um, in a way that David can hear how he has fallen short from the reign of God. And so talking about things like what happened in New Zealand is a way for us to sort of think about it and process it in a way that's not as intimate as talking about something that happened right here in our hometown. Um, so I love to use parables and images that speak to our to our situation in a way that we can understand without being so personally in, involved, and then, and then finally, um, finally, that's that's finally what I was going to say. <laughs> Cameron, yeah, this has been yeah. really interesting and really enlightening. And unfortunately, uh, we're coming to the end of our hour and our session, so we're going to have to wrap it up. We, I could sit here and talk to you for the rest of the day, the rest of the week about this. It's just endlessly fascinating. But um, hopefully we can have another time where you call in and we'll keep this conversation going. But thank you so much for your time, and we appreciate uh, your words of wisdom today. Yeah, and I... Yeah! And I, I want, oh! <laughs> yes, I just want to... I don't... I want to conclude um, the podcast, and I don't think we've said this before, but when, you know, one of the things that keep on... We're talking about Pentecost, we're talking about the power of the Spirit, um, we're talking about dialogue, conversation, prayer... One of the things I want to hold on to this week is something Jesus said to the disciples that I have not taught you everything. There are some things that you cannot know now, but the Spirit, one who is more powerful than I, is coming after you. And that's coming after me. And that Spirit will lead you into all truth. And so, that, and that's still, that's still true today. Um, we, there's a lot of discernment. There's a lot of conversation. Um, as opposed to, to trying to find the right answer understanding that the right answer is 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 being revealed is revealed jack if there was a right answer cameron would have shared it with us by now (laughs) all right funny guy well i just want to say first of all thank you all for you know calling calling and i hope any something i said made sense but jack i think you're you're onto something there with um with the spirit and and being right i've i've tried to get away in my own um, discernment around preaching and things like that from thinking about what is the quote-unquote right thing to say on a given Sunday and more what is the faithful thing hey, to hey, say man, and rooting it, it and rooting it there and so um, you know because you don't want to be a monotone preacher right you don't want to say the same thing every single week and Wait, people become oh, inoculated to it, so yeah, yeah you want to 
you want to come along your parishioners and saying, I'm struggling with the same things you're struggling with. This is hard. Um, but our call is not, like you said, not to be right, but to be faithful. Exactly, um, yeah. And, and that's the word of the day. Once again, this is the Reverend Cameron Nations from St. Luke's Episcopal Church. We're grateful for your time and for your words. And we'll be back with you. And, and this was Josiah, Reverend Josiah Ringers and uh, my buddy, the Reverend Jack Alvey. Uh, it's been a pleasure, Jack, to reconnect with you, and I guess I'll see you in 18 months. Uh, 18 days. 18 days. Okay, I'll see you in 18 days, and we'll do this again. Thank you all for tuning in to this Anglican Life. God bless. Thanks, Cameron. <laughs>